0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting episode of the Sports Psych MDs podcast. This is episode 44. We have an exciting show today, none other than the great Andre Collins, currently serving as the executive director of the Professional Athletes Foundation at the NFL Players Association, former Washington Redskins Super Bowl champion, 92. Uh, But... He's also a national champion with the Penn State University Nittany Lions in 1986.
1: Oh, and he was an All-American in 89 and a Buckus Award finalist, which goes to the best linebacker in college football. Great football player on the field, but I think what he's doing off the field is even better. And you touched on that. He's working with NFLPA. He talks about this passport to wellness, which definitely includes mental health, addiction counseling, spousal, couples counseling. He sure does. Smocks yeah. for jocks. He's yeah, a little bit of a painter and- as well.
0: Yeah, it's a jack of all tr- trades, you know, more than just an athlete. And, you know, he's a guy that really, um, you know, has been not just a great player, but a great ambassador for the league, a great leader, uh, mentors young players, young NFL athletes. And, yeah, he's just a, an all around great guy. And we're going to talk a, a lot about, you know, the, the things that we have become our kind of our bread and butter, you know, mindfulness, gratitude, resilience of him forward in his career, both on the field and off the field.
1: Yep, absolutely. And I think that this is a great, and the kind of the series we've been doing, we had the, the new NFL player on, Tremaine Akram. We had the sports psychologist for the Rams, Dr. Hastings. And now we have someone from the NFL Players Association, Mr. Andre Collins, on today. So the NFL and the NFLPA, they're making strides in the right direction to address mental health concerns and – I mean, the sky's the limit. Things are headed in the right direction, and we're we're really fortunate to have Mr. Collins on today.
0: I thought it was pretty cool too that he was willing to kind of address uh, the the issue around social justice related to the Washington Redskins' naming.
1: Oh yeah, you came out hot and, with that question. Out, yeah,
0: I right. well, you know, you had to, man. It's you know, it's what's going on right now, and what a lot of people care about. Uh, you know, so I, you know, it's. It's a worthy cause. And, you know, it turns out that uh, you know, Mr. Collins was one that even back uh early in his career, he had voted to have the name changed. And so, you know, he's actually a person that is very excited to, to see this happen and, and believes it's gonna do great things for the city and the community there.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Armin. Mr. Collins has been a great advocate and like you said, he, he was vouching for this name change many, many years ago, uh, which a lot of people have been and, and for Whatever reason the, the Washington franchise has finally decided to change the name and the mascot, which is a step in the right direction. But there I, I have a lot of thoughts on that, and I wanted to hear what you guys are thinking about this situation.
0: Yeah, man. It, it, I mean, you're right. You know, it, it, it's a good step in the right direction. Um, and anytime you have positive momentum aimed in the right direction, you want to recognize that. You know, you you want to make sure. If that's acknowledged, because that is definitely the kind of thing that we want to see. We want to see all of our, our major institutions, our major sports uh, leagues, take steps in the right direction towards social justice, towards really committing to the players that, you know, that grind for them, you know, that put their health, you know, their safety on the line for these, these organizations like we want to see these organizations protecting uh, these people and, and understanding that even though Native American and indigenous peoples uh, of this country don't represent a you know, significant number of, of actual players, what I think a lot of people maybe don't recognize is that a lot of these players do have um, Native American and indigenous ancestry. and. You know, historically, the Black American community in particular is one where there was significant integration, particularly uh, in the the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century um, after the abolition of slavery, after slavery was ended, there was actually a significant number of Black families and and Native, Amer- Native American families that, that integrated during that period. Um, and this, of course, would be the period before uh, many of the Native American reservations were established. My family in particular is one uh, that has significant integration of Native American and, and Black American on both sides. So, you know, these are issues that, that really do affect uh, many different people in a variety of ways. Not to mention the fact that uh there was a time again before the establishment of reservations that I mean, football being America's pastime was a game that was also played uh by Native American people and um you know there's um there's sort of a legacy believe it or not kind of a lost legacy of and, and tradition of uh, Native American football players, you know, at the collegiate level, you know, going back to the 1800s. And um, it's kind of interesting to see, like, how an issue like a name change, uh, an offensive name change became such a controversial thing that took decades to, uh, to make happen, even though there have been, you know, calls to do this from so many different people for so long. Again, we recognize that this is significant and this is important and and this is a step in the right direction. But I think that what what folks really wanna see is they wanna see that that we're not just changing names, but that we're really changing people's hearts and minds. And particularly as it relates to the Native American community, uh, that we're helping these people understand that um, American institutions, particularly American sports institutions, we don't support racism and we don't support racism in, in any form. And in fact, we want to embrace all people, you know, and, and you know, encourage young Native American, indigenous athletes to come up uh, through the ranks and you know, be a part of our, our institutions, a part of our, our college teams, our college athletic programs, our professional teams, um, and just more of an outreach effort to let other people know that we care about them. And the sports, after all, like we talked about, is a meritocracy.
1: And not and not be looked at as, as mascots. And I think I'm glad you took it that direction because I don't want to highlight the fact that Washington football franchise is changing their name because ultimately it took, like you said, decades. And it wasn't until big corporations like FedEx, Nike, Amazon essentially threatened them to, to pull their jerseys from their sites to, to not sponsor their stadiums for them to make this change. So all, the almighty dollar is something that finally uh, kind of fueled this change. And ultimately what I want to spend the time is highlighting the fact of that the native American population, this uh, indigenous population of America, they suffer a lot of inequalities and they have one of the, if not the highest rate of suicide going from essentially all ages the highest rates of alcohol addiction and some of the highest rates of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, obesity, liver disease, and hepatitis. And partly due to the fact that they lost their culture. Oftentimes it was stolen from them. Their land was stolen from them. There's a lot of historical trauma and we know how much trauma can lead to stress. And we all know how much losing your culture, losing your identity, how important you are culture is to your identity and if you were to lose that how much stress that causes and that could lead to all these different health issues and mental health issues which we see in these Native American communities and that's what I want to spend the time talking about is because we need to to really when we talk when Armand and I and Ben has joined the conversation now talking about social justice it's it's not just a black and white issue it's an issue that involves everyone, every human, and we can't forget about the Native American population. And I, I think the name change is just something that will give us, us an opportunity to, to speak about all the difficult issues that, that these populations often face. Tori, yeah, man. No, we can't forget and we won't forget,
0: right? We can't forget and we won't forget. Um, we have to, to, to be as athletes, as you know, people who love sports, as people who support sports, we really have to be the model of change. Um, we have to be the ones that are willing to step up and fight for what's right. Um, you know, we talked about this before. There's uh, this 2014 White House report on Native youth, which notes that, you know, kind of to what, what you were saying, Native children in particular, Native children have suicide and PTSD rates. that are three times the national average. This is comparable um, only to Iraq war veterans. And, um, you know, you think about that, I mean, these are children. And, you know, how do you ask yourself, well, how do, how do children who, who live on reservations that are supposed to be protected communities, how do they have you know such high rates of you know, PTSD and suicide? And uh, you know, I think honestly, Tori it goes back to what we talked about before, this epigenetic transmission that happens from generation to generation, where traumatizing you know community trauma uh, and traumatizing events that happen historically can continue to to burden populations you know, even many generations later. And um, these are issues that are really issues that should be important to all of us um, because, you know, we talk about America and how much we love this country, but then, you know, we don't often respect the, the people that, you know, made all of this possible, right? Which are the people that came before us, the people that uh, toiled this land and, you know, made this land fertile for all of us to be able to come uh, now and, you know, be a part of, of this, you know, this great country.
1: Um, yeah. it's, it's a conversation that has to be had. I have a 2018 CDC report that shows that the suicide rates are 3.5 times higher um, among Native Americans. And one third of those deaths, the suicide deaths, are, are in children. So it is it's an epidemic in itself and it's something that needs to be addressed and like you said historical trauma that's passed down from generation to generation stored in our dna because of stolen land among other things the people from europe when they came over here brought a lot of diseases with them that the native americans could couldn't quite handle among other things uh, that you guys are all well aware of so it's um, a conversation that needs to be had and hopefully, ideally this name change is just kind of now highlighting, can put the spotlight on this situation so people can have these discussions um, and something can be done to help these communities because the name change in itself is, is not gonna help these communities. And you can even look up online and, and people will tell you, um, well, yeah, a lot of Native Americans actually agree with the name and don't want a name change. Um, so you can find that data out there if you, if you look for it, but what you're always going to find when you, when you look up Native Americans is you're going to find increased risks of, of mental health and physical health issues. And that's something that we should uh, be striving for with regards to equality of health care, quality of mental health care and um, social justice. So I'm glad we were able to talk a little bit about that today before we get into this interview.
2: Yeah. Um, one thing that I'm curious about is what's the domino effect of the Redskins changing their name? I don't even you know if we can call them the Redskins anymore. I mean <laughs> the first two names that come to mind are the Cleveland Indians and Atlanta Braves. And the Indians management and ownership are having ongoing discussions regarding the name change and they've already taken away the Chief Wahoo logo on their game jerseys. The Atlanta Braves have said that they're gonna keep their name, but they're going to eliminate the Tomahawk. Celebration chant that their fans and players do, so it's just it's interesting to see how how teams are going to follow after the Redskins, and uh, that's one thing I'm curious about.
1: You got the Florida State Seminoles as well. Yeah, I got the Seminoles. We have a lot
2: of
0: teams that 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 you know maybe need to take a look at things. But I, I do want to mention that I I don't think that the answer here is necessarily to avoid or run away from you know, this issue or, you know, to consider this issue, uh, to be like a distraction for the organization. I think that's the wrong approach. I think that, you know, what this has to be is, um, really an effort at, um, hopefully getting the teams, the organizations and, and, you know, that includes the fan base as well as the players and coaching staff and, you know, organization And the executives and so forth to really be a part of maybe reaching out to you know the native american community and hey you know learning more about them um you know learning more about their culture authentically you know not the the elements of the culture that you know are in our history books or folklore or our movies about you know the wild west or you know how the West was won, but in fact, maybe having workshops, seminars where they invite you know Native American peoples to come and and speak, you know, and and teach, and and we, you know where we learn about them, and 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 really uh, again embrace the culture, um, because I think that that really is how we get to a point where these stereotypes and these kind of naming conventions are, are not a problem, right? Because if we understood what these people were really about and what they really needed, and we were able to connect with them in that way, um, then I think it could just be, if anything, a really great thing for promoting the Native American peoples and, you know, um, you know ultimately making them feel like they're a part of what we what we're doing, in you know, a part of these organizations, absolutely making them feel like they're coming home. You know, making hey, you know, why not, you know, donate uh, some some seats, right? Um, just like we have seats that we dedicate at some of these games for our veterans. I've actually had the benefit of being in the stands in the veterans a special section dedicated to the veterans. And, you know, it's great. And, you know, I, we, got, we got a salute from the crowd and everything. But I would consider what our Native peoples and Indigenous peoples to have gone through. And, frankly, what they represent to be just as important, um, you know, as what my role and the role of other veterans represent. So, you know, things like that.
2: Yeah.
1: And we wanna, I want to keep highlighting different things like the life expectancy of an American Indian and Alaskan Native. Have born today have a life expectancy less than 5.5 years compared to all other races. So these are the things where we need to address. Yeah, we can give them some seats to the game. I think that'd be helpful. That'd be cool. But we need to address the inadequate education, the disproportionate rates of poverty, the discrimination in the delivery of health care, mental health services included. And those are the places where we need to come in. And, And that involves bringing it native americans into leadership positions into roles where they can have a seat at the table and 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 these types of discussions because they ultimately will know what they need more than more than us so um, i'm glad we could have this conversation um anything else you guys want to speak on before we get into this interview
0: maybe covered all the bases no man i'm just yeah uh, i'm just uh i'm just glad that we're able to talk about these things you know i just feel like there was a, a day in time not too long ago where a, a discussion like this uh, would have been very controversial and you know, would have potentially, uh, you know, it would have fallen on deaf ears. But I feel like you know, there's a, this is a really great time in history. Um, a lot of people are, are wanting to open their eyes, wanting to learn, and wanting to make positive changes for their communities. And this is a community of people that have, have been left behind for far too long, and I'm just really proud that that we can stand up for them. And we can deliver a message of hope for those people, our people.
1: All right, guys. I hope you enjoy the interview today with
2: Andre Collins,
1: national champion, Super Bowl champion, and current executive director of the Professional Athletes Foundation at the NFLPA. Enjoy. Here we
2: go. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to episode 44 of Sports Like MDs. Today, we have a very special guest who's no stranger to success. Penn State litany lines defeated the Miami Hurricanes in what's known as one of the greatest upsets in Penn State football history, the 1987 Fiesta Bowl. He was then drafted by the Washington Redskins and played in the NFL for 10 years, five in Washington, three in Cincinnati, two in Chicago, and one in Detroit. He's played in seven playoff games, most notably the nineteen ninety one Super Bowl, where he and the Redskins took down Jim Kelly and the Buffalo Bills. Today, he serves as the director of retired players in the NFLPA. Ladies and gentlemen, Andre Collins, thank you for coming on today.
3: Oh, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, so, so excited to be a part of this important conversation today. Just ready to share, you know, everything that I know about sports, uh, mental health, uh, the programs that we've created at the NFL PA and you know whatever else you guys want to ask so I'm an open book this Sunday afternoon awesome
0: well wow well, we uh, very, very much appreciate you being here it's it's uh, a rare opportunity to have a, a Super Bowl champion join any podcast so I think uh, you know given the fact that um, you know the the first professional team you played with Washington Redskins you know we know that that right now there has been a lot of I guess, uh, public interest in, in that in that organization. Um, and, you know, I, being a person that grew up in that area, you know, in Maryland and being a, a Redskins fan as a child. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting, you know, being a person that is a member of the black community and, uh, and supporting that team. I, I for one, really, um, I, I had to start to really, you know, look within myself recently and, and ask, you know, what that meant for me, um, particularly given the fact that I also have native Indigenous uh, as well. And I, it's unfortunate that I really, I feel like I didn't completely you know, really consider what the, the significance of the name of the team meant for his outside of mine, you know, in terms of where I grew up and, um, I just wanted to know if uh, you know you being a person that was once affiliated with that that team and you know won a, a Super Bowl with that team, if you had any uh, anything you wanted to share with us uh, with you know our listeners in terms of you know how you feel about the the name change and you know what do you think it means for the, the organization at the, at this time?
3: Yeah, I, I appreciate that question and the opportunity to talk about this a little bit. Um, Back in 1992, I went on the record saying that I was in favor of a name change, and I was a young player in the league, you know, at the time, and I wish I could have been able to do more to honor my Native American friends. Um, But again, I was a young player, and I just wish it had happened a long time ago. It's long overdue. So as someone that's played for the organization and, you know, Certainly Washington has a great history on the field, but you know, this is just a new day and a new reckoning of how we're supposed to treat one another as humans. And it's long overdue. You know, humans aren't mascots and it's time to change the name and the record on the field will always remain. The great players that have played there will still be great tomorrow under under another name. So, I'm just so happy that it's finally happened. And, you know, I know there are some players, as I've seen the interviews over the last couple of weeks, you know, players really feeling some kind of way about not being able to be represented by that Redskins logo anymore. And it's just, some of that, they're my friends and my teammates, but some of it's just, some of it's very disappointing.
0: And it's time to turn the page and
3: be better as people.
0: Yeah. No, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And you, know, you being, you know, one of the, the greats in the, in the game, you know, someone that, uh, um, you know, won a, won a Super Bowl with that, that organization. I, I know that your word, you know, your leadership, um, you know, at this time, you know, representing the, uh, the retired players association, you know, it, that's, uh, that means a lot you know, hearing from you. And I, I think that the younger players can learn a lot. Uh, just taking advice from you and, and counsel from you in terms of how to, how to, you know, I think, especially publicly, you know, uh, how they they really represent themselves at this time, you know, being representatives of the NFL uh, and frankly, of, as you said, you know, in certain cases, if it's the black community, um, you know, if it's just you know, humanity in general you want to represent the right things right now, you know, especially with all the, of the, the social injustice that we're seeing. So really appreciate you for, uh, for sharing that.
3: Yeah, we're living, we're living in an incredible time right now. So I'm just happy that I'm still alive and kicking and hopefully, you know, I I can add and advocate for, for change for, for anyone that's deserving.
1: All right. So Ben, did you have a question you wanted to lead off with or?
2: Yeah, actually, I meant to read off. Um, so, Andre, we do a little segment on the show. When you were playing, what was your hype song?
3: My hype song? Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know. I was I was definitely more of a, you know, Led Zeppelin kind of guy. So, you know, any, anything uh, Led Zeppelin was what was playing in my ear uh, prior to any game, you know, you know, that that classic rock, that hard rock, that guitar rock, that was the only thing that could match my intensity on the morning of a game day. So that's what I went with. I wasn't, you know, I love rap, but I really wasn't much of a rap guy prior to the games. I just needed—I um, needed, I needed my Led Zeppelin. You know, my college roommate at the time when I was at Penn State, I didn't know anything about Led Zeppelin before I got to Penn State, but the guy that they paired me up with Tom Bill, who ended up playing in the NFL for a little while. He was a quarterback and he had every Led Zeppelin album. You know, it was locked and loaded all the time. And tell you, by the time I left Penn State, I knew every Led Zeppelin song. (laughs) I'm so, so thankful that I got to experience that. And I still laugh today that one of my great joys is when I'm riding around you know, in my car and I happened to hear a Led Zeppelin song on the radio. It's like finding, it's like finding a diamond out there. So no, Led Zeppelin was playing in my ear uh, on game day for sure. Nice.
2: Nice. So I know, I noticed you're not, as I mentioned in the intro, you're pretty familiar with pressure and success. And I think your statistics speak for yourself. You kind of step up to the occasion. What do you think it is about you as a player and your personality that, helps you thrive when the spotlight comes on you, whether it's the Fiesta Bowl, a playoff game, or the Super Bowl. What, what, what do you think it is about you, and what do you think it is about an athlete that you need to, like, thrive in the big game?
3: Well, I'm glad we have a lot of time blocked off because you guys are really asking some amazing questions. I think, you know, you really have to, to go back to where I'm from and who I am, you know, um, from in, New Jersey, I was born into a family of uh, 19 kids. So there were 12 boys and seven girls, all to my mom and dad. My dad was a wallpaper hanger for almost 50 years, just a tough guy, a strong guy. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom who just really valued education, valued words, poetry, the arts. So I grew up in a really unique household, but I think the work ethic comes from my father and just watching him go to work every day. And when our family, even though we were a big family, it wasn't a hard luck story. You know, all my brothers and sisters went to college. Some even followed me to Penn State and even played in the NFL. But we just watched our dad work hard and there just wasn't a lot of room for making excuses. So when I went to Penn State let me back up one second. I, I, don't, I never considered myself a great athlete. I always felt like the thing that was going to get me there was being able to outwork everyone. So I convinced myself of that very early. So when I went to Penn State and the first day you walk out onto the practice field and there's 200 players and you're saying to yourself, I'll never play here. And you just, you start to climb that mountain, you know, one day at a time. And then you realize, and I had great coaches at Penn State, Joe Paterno. That was his whole mantra. You know, you have to work hard. You have to be prepared. You have to have courage. You have to be tough. So I just bought into all that. And I finally got onto the field uh, my junior year and started at linebacker. But prior to that time was really just a special teams player and a backup uh, defensive back. So, you know, it was just those early years, you know, realizing that you had to work hard. And, you know, I played on a high school football team where we didn't have a lot of players at Cinnaminson, And we just kind of circled the wagon with the 25 or 26 guys that we had, you know, playing in South Jersey, playing against some big schools. And um, we, you know, we just had some rules amongst ourselves. We knew we were going to work hard. We knew we were going to be tired. So we forbid each other to help the other team up. I mean, there were just a lot of fun, tough things that that we worked on. And I carried those things to Penn State. And I used to almost knock my my teammates at Penn State off their feet if they ever reached down to try and help up the running back from the other team. And I was just like, we're working working too hard, and we're going to need that extra little bit of energy at the end of this game to try and win. So just being tough, and I always took a lot of pride in being from New Jersey, being from South Jersey, being a tough guy, and it just carried through. And I think when you play football, everybody can't play football. It's a tough game. So I just prided myself on that, and thank God I had enough athletic ability to go along with it.
1: You mentioned... Football is definitely a tough game. What was it about football that attracted you to that sport specifically?
3: I think I was just born a football player. When I think back over my life, um, watching pro football in the 70s, I'd rather watch football than be outside. And my mom had bought me this um, encyclopedia of football the first 50 years. And I can just remember just constantly being in that book. It was just something about the helmets, you know, the colors of the uniform, the pageantry. I just was drawn to it, and I just wanted I just wanted to be a part of that. So I just loved the look of it when I was a small boy, and then when I had the chance to play, I think every American boy, you're born understanding the rules of American football, and you just play it, and I just enjoyed it so much. And then I had lots of had lots of
0: brothers to compete against. You know, the best games were in our back, sure. What was it like uh being a part of uh, such a uh, an amazing tradition um with Penn State and going to that type of elite D one program?
3: I just I just loved Penn State so much. Um Just the history, when you talk about the history of the players that have played there, you know, some of the great ones of all time and guys you don't even recognize that played at Penn State, guys like Franco Harris, Lenny Moore, Rosie Greer, you know, the Shane Condlins of the world, the DJ Dozers, the Blair Thomases of the world. Some, Some of those guys I played with, Matt Millen, Bruce Clark, so many guys, Matt Suey. Uh, Scott Fitzky, Tom Fusina, so many guys played there that just personified Penn State against the world and I just love that and I just love the fact that even though we've had a lot of success it was almost like we had to prove ourselves every year no one ever made Penn State number 1 at the beginning of the season we always had such a mountain to climb and you know and when we climbed it and And to win a championship or, you know, to win a division or to be recognized as a top team in the country, it always felt so good. And we felt like we had worked so hard and had so much further to come than some of the other teams that, you know, started out in the top five or the top 10 for Penn State. More recently, it's happened. But in the years that I played there, we always had so far to go to get to number one. So we hated that. We hated that for Conte Paterno. Because we we all felt like he was a great coach.
1: Yeah, absolutely. See, speaking of great coaches, you obviously you played for Joe Paterno, and you also played for Joe Gibbs in the NFL. Two of the best at their respective levels. Um, how was it like playing for those two legends?
3: You know, both the same and different at the same time. I think um, Coach Paterno was a Brooklyn guy, so you could hear that Brooklyn accent from five miles away when he was coming and he had this high pitched voice and his favorite he didn't curse at all and we we weren't allowed to curse on the practice field and he insisted that everyone call him and all the other coaches by their first name. So, you know, that was a little different, you know, when I first got to Penn State. But you could hear that high pitched voice and his favorite thing to say was, Ah nuts. He used to just that was that was as bad (laughs) as it got for him. But you know, he was a tough guy. He really valued uh, being prepared, but more than that, he tried to mix in a lot of different things about life into his uh, style of coaching. He always quoted great, great poets, uh, great authors. You know, he always made us believe that there was a lot more to life uh, than just football. And when I was a young player at Penn State, I couldn't wait to get to the team room every day to hear what Coach Paterno was gonna say before practice. Every day was just so exciting. And he was such an electrifying man that you were willing to run through a brick wall for him. And, you know, that was intense. So when I got to Washington and I'm thinking, wow, you know, if that was Penn State and that was college and here's the great Joe Gibbs, I can't wait to hear what he has to say And that part of it, not saying that Coach Gibbs wasn't great because he was a great man, but the rah rah aspect of what happens in college was just missing in the NFL. And I was a little disappointed. But then I learned that, you know, these are grown men. You know, my teammates had wives, they had kids, and there was just a different approach that Coach Gibbs had to take. But in the end, you know, I would put them both on par with one another as being great coaches. Um, Coach Gibbs was a real family man and he ran our football club like a family you know we had church on Saturday nights and family was always a part of everything that we did on Saturday night pregame and we we lived together you know we worshiped together and we won together you know in Washington with Coach Gibbs and you know those were really special years when I was a young player in Washington
0: Yeah, speaking of the one of those years, the Super Bowl year. Like I said, it's just so rare that you have an opportunity to talk to a Super Bowl champion, you know, face to face like this, and and really get to know uh, from you know from their perspective, the the real perspective, what it's like to to climb that mountain. Um, You know, it's it's a grind no matter what if you're in in the NFL, and but I just feel like that that particular climb, that particular season had to be, had to be different in terms of, you know, some aspect of the preparation or, um, you know, how things played out, the team itself, the team chemistry than any other season that you had in the NFL. And I was just curious to know if you could, you could share with us what that experience was like.
3: Yeah, I I know, I know exactly what you're getting at. Uh, When I was a rookie in 1990, um, we were a good football team and we were winning lots of games but then something special started to happen at the end of the 1990 season where we won maybe five or six games in a row uh, leading into the playoffs at the end of the 1990 season and we we went out to San Francisco if not for the 49ers I probably would have three Super Bowl rings but we went out to San Francisco and we lost to the 49ers uh, my rookie season and You know, when we when we got back to Washington, there was just this feeling. There was just this thing that we were we were right on the edge of having something really good and everyone believed it. And when we came together at the start of the 1991 season, it was a veteran team mixed in with some good young talent, uh, Brian Mitchell, uh, Bobby Wilson. So there was this nice balance of old guys that had already won two Super Bowls and then some young energy kind of coming in to kind of bring it all together. And I just remember just how awful a team we were in the preseason in 1991. I mean, we were getting beat up and down the field and Coach Gibbs was just like, what what is going on but no one ever really seemed to worry or get nervous about it and then when we opened the season in 1991 against the Detroit Lions on Sunday night and just really ran them off the field and then won the first 11 ball games it was just really special but i think it was just a combination of of knowing how to win and having the right leadership on the team and just so many weapons we were so talented i mean offensively we could score from the parking lot. And defensively, there were just a lot of really smart guys and tough guys. So it was just, it was just the perfect storm when things kind of came together for us in 1991. And now we had that same thing
2: again.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing to ask about that team is that was Mark Rippon. He was the quarterback of that, that Super Bowl team. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, and, and it, it's interesting, too, because he was also the quarterback, if I remember correctly, maybe not, but back in 87 when the Skins won, uh, and, and but Doug Williams had to take over and, uh, and lead them to, to that victory. And, you know, so I, I kind of think it's interesting because that team that, that you inherited was a team that was sort of, you know, the legacy of, of having had the, the first black Super Bowl champion quarterback or first black uh, quarterback to be a Super Bowl champion uh in in league history. So, yeah, I think there was just a lot of really good things happening in that organization. You know, the the black community is a very vibrant community in in DC always has been and at that time, I think it was probably more more vibrant than ever and and that team I remember was just kind of like the you know, the the hope of that city at that time. So. So yeah, those are great times for sure.
3: Yeah, I think I mean it was I think it was Jay Schrader that uh, Doug Williams uh, came in for, oh, and yeah. I, don't, I don't know if yeah, Ripping right. was on the roster, but he might have been a young player on that team. But um, you know, all those guys were still kind of hanging around when I got to Washington in nineteen ninety. I got I've gotten to know Doug really well over the years. I remember he was retired by time I got to Washington in 1990, but he still used to come around and hang out with the fellows. So it was just, um, it was just a great, it was, Washington was a great place to play and a great city to be in, in the early nineties. And hey, I'm still here, you know, after, after 30 years, you know, the capital area is still home. And I don't, I can't even imagine living anywhere else, you know, after
1: all these years, so. I definitely want to get into what you've been up to after your your playing career but I wanted to ask you you mentioned before you you had a certain intensity to you in the locker room and you brought some young energy to the game so I want to know if you're the type of player who who like to play with a lot of emotions like high, in a high emotional state or you like to be calm cool and collected when you're out there on the field
3: Oh man it's it's hard to say I mean there were different there were different moods on different days and I think part of that was you know trying to just be true to the moment and how I felt that morning. I mean, there were some mornings when I woke up that I just didn't really feel like saying anything. I just wanted to carry out the game plan. And then there were other days when I wanted to yell a lot and wanted to scream a lot. But I think for the most part, I was, I was out there talking and fighting and, and yelling and screaming more than I was a quiet guy. Um, I felt like sometimes, not that I was even a big guy or a strong guy, but I liked to fight. And I felt like a lot of times when my teammates would get hit in the back, you know, unfairly, I would take it upon myself to exact some revenge on on the perpetrator. So I think that was kind of the chip that I carried on my shoulder. And that was the role that I kind of played sometimes to motivate myself but no one's going to be an effective football player unless you're you're running the right plays and following the game plan so you can't be a 100% Tasmanian devil out there you've got to go into the huddle you've got to know your assignment you've got to know your opponent so in pro football there's definitely there's definitely a balance there but you know when you're feeling good and things are things are really going your way, and you're really able to dominate the guy that you're matched up against that day, that's when things really start to get fun. And you shove him around a couple of extra times, or you say a few extra things to him on the way um, back to the huddle. And I'm 52 years old now, so no one's looking for me today. But back then, there were probably a few people looking for me after some of those games.
1: you had mentioned er- earlier that you had worked with a, a performance uh, psychologist during your playing career.
3: I did. I did. Um, he was, you know, he was an Olympic athlete um, back in the day. His name was uh, Bill Thayerfelder, and he's actually the president of Belmont Abbey College today. But, you know, he was sports performance and sports psychology all wrapped up into one. And I remember. Uh, not really feeling uh, excited about going into the nineteen ninety four season, um, which was my fifth year honestly i I just hadn 't trained that much in the off season, and i just i just wasn't ready i wasn 't ready to compete I just wasn 't ready to ask my body to do some of the things that it needed to do and I happened to go off to this uh, summer football camp where I was going to be one of the counselors for the kids. And I saw Dr. Theofelder there, and he said, hey, why don't you come listen to my talk a little later in the afternoon? And when I went and sat in the back of the room and kind of listened to his talk, he talked a lot about focus and, you know, what is, what is my purpose as a person and what is my purpose as an athlete? And all three of those things I was really missing. I was really restless Um, at the end of the 1993 season preparing for the 1994 season there was just something about it I just I just didn't want to do it I just I really didn't I knew I I knew I had to do it because I had this talent and I was still young enough to play and be impactful and be productive but I just couldn't wrap my mind around wanting to do it and I spent a lot of Days sitting in my apartment leading up to that 1994 season really unmotivated, until I met Dr. Thayerfelder and we started to have some sessions, and we talked a lot about um, focus, going through some focus training, and then when we got the purpose, and you know I don't mind sharing this because I am a God-fearing man, and Bill has helped shape a lot of that. He wanted to understand what my relationship was like with God and where was the purpose in my life, you know, at that time. So it just really challenged me. And you know, I was driving a big fancy car back then and I drive up to York, Pennsylvania to meet him to work out, you know, on some of the tracks up there in York. And um, you know, he had given me this little, you know, Bible book and I, you know, leaving one of the workouts, I just threw it in the back seat of my car and forgot all about it. And I drove home and I just was really restless. This was two weeks before even going to training camp, just so restless, restless, didn't want to do it. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking for food. I'm looking for, you know, drinks, anything to take my mind off of what is to come in the next couple of weeks. And then I look over and I saw that little blue book and, you know, I, I just committed right then and there. I said, you know what, I'm going to read one page a night to see what this does for me, and instantly it kind of calmed me down. It kind of set some boundaries for me and my purpose. And then I really started to work intensely with Bill on trying to to try and be the person that I needed to be uh, to perform at the highest level. And it was all about it was all about focus and performance. After that, and going into that 1994 season. For a guy that hadn't really trained much, um, grossly out of shape, really, when I showed up, the energy that I gained uh, through Dr. Thayer Felder, the sports psychology, uh, the focus training, the purpose training. I had energy just pouring out of me and statistically, I still look back statistically, it was my best year statistically. I led the team in tackles. I led the team in interceptions. I scored a couple of touchdowns. I mean, it it was just an absolute amazing year, so. Just happy to meet Bill at the right time. And that really propelled me through the last five years of my career. And I never enjoyed football so much as I did my last five years playing and working together with Dr. Fair, Dr. Therfelder. Never got nervous before games. Never worried about how I was going to perform because the end product never really mattered. It just mattered that I was going to make my best effort in those particular moments moment to moment and that's what i focused on and just had tremendous results and even today in my work life and in my family life i always preach about just being in the moment stringing moments together just being the best that you can in the moment making the best decision in the moment don't worry about the results if you're making your best effort in the moment the results will take care of itself so that's how I live. And Bill, Bill gave me that. And I try and pass that on to, to the young athletes that I come across today. And even my former players, as they're transforming from active players up to former players, I just always try and encourage them to, to, to just feel where you are, feel where you are and just try and be your best in that moment.
1: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So it sounds like your faith really grounded you and then you you learned all these different skills on how to stay focused, stay mindful of the moment. Did, did you have any like tricks that you used if you got distracted to keep your focus? Is there any like simple things you can share with us that you did, whether that's like deep breathing or something?
3: It wasn't. There wasn't deep breathing, but you know, there was just, it's, it might sound even a little corny, but after I had learned that I needed to be in the moment, I would always if I if I was out on the practice field and I I wasn't really practicing you know staying focused or even if I was in a in a game and I wasn't practicing you know being focused or wh- I was worrying about the last play I would always count down from 12 12 11 10 9 and that when I got down to 0 that 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 was it I had to, I had to, I had to be here. I had to be right now. So counting back from 12, and I still do that today. I don't know why I chose 12. I just, maybe I felt like, you know, five wasn't enough, maybe 10 wasn't enough, but maybe two more beats (laughs) was gonna be enough to kinda, to get me to where I needed to be. So it's always been counting back, counting back from 12 to try and get to where I needed to be.
2: There it is, great. Uh, speaking about mentality players have, I wanted to ask you, I read a quote that you said a few years back about the player's mentality. And you said that now, not, this isn't word for word, but you said that uh, back then players were willing to more or less just roll up their sleeves and do the dirty work and not really be the star of the team. They just wanted to do whatever it took to, to contribute to the team's success now everyone feels the need to be a star or like to be like, yeah, the biggie, the big name on the team. So what, what do you think contributed to that mentality shift between the different generations?
3: Well, I mean, I, I, I think I, I vaguely remember saying that. Cause I talk about that a lot. I talk about, you know, I was referring probably to Washington and Penn state and my experience there where, especially in Washington, where, there were a lot of great players on those teams and any one of those individual players could have been a mega star anywhere else in the league. But in Washington, there was always a sacrifice for the team and a sacrifice to play your role. And I think a credit to Coach Gibbs was that no matter what role you're playing, you're, you're important to me and you're important to this team. And I just felt like there was a stretch in the NFL where there was a lot of, you know, me, me, me. And I, and I can't name any, any player outright, but it just seemed like for a stretch there, there was a lot of me, me, me. And when you're just making a routine tackle, you're like, Hey, you know, come on, you know, come on, look at me. And I just think sometimes when, when you work together and you can kind of minimize some of that and just honor each other as teammates, that together you go far, you know? And I've, all the best teams that I've played on have been unselfish teams, where the best players have been willing to do some of the dirtiest work. Um, And then I watch, I watch teams today that have two or three great players that really stand out and really love the accolades. You watch their, you watch the team suffer because there's there's just a dis there's a disconnect there, you know, and I've watched a lot of sports and i've I've analyzed a lot of teams, you know, and I just don't look at them you know as first down, second down, third down. I don't look at baseball teams as who's on first base, who's playing left field. I always try and watch how the players interact in the dugout or how the hockey players interact on the bench or how football players. Um, interact on the sidelines at practice and I've noticed that the teams that win genuinely like each other and the teams that don't win there's always a disconnect there.
0: Yeah and we talk a lot about uh, team chemistry and the importance of of team chemistry and and how the dynamics of a team play into the, the the ability of that team to perform at a high level. Would you say that there there are you know, specific things that, um, that a team could could do uh, together to you know form closer bonds or you know you know create a, a stronger sense of unity?
3: I don't know, what, I don't know that I don't know what teams or coaches or administrators of clubs have to do to kind of create that atmosphere. There's just something special that comes together for championship teams where it just kind of happens naturally. Um, I remember uh, in Washington, you know, going into that 1991 season, there was just something, there was just something really good about how we were together. There was just something really good. And you know, those were the best teams that I played on as pros. And then going to Cincinnati after Washington, we liked each other, but there just wasn't that – there just wasn't that – we just didn't want to be around each other, you know, after practice like we did in Washington. You know, Kirk Gavea, Raven Caldwell, you know, Wilbur Marshall, you know, Alvin Walton, those guys, you know, as a young player, they dragged me all around the city. And we were together. I mean, we would all work out early in the morning. And we were together from 11 o'clock in the morning till midnight. I mean, almost every day. We just, we wanted to be around each other. So cool. I just think something happens in those friendships that kind of create what what a championship team um, is all about. And some, sometimes I think, you know, I wasn't part of the struggles for Washington from 88 to 91, I came in 1990, but they had a couple of tough years in 88 and 89. And then I think sometimes it's the buildup of those years where you know you can be better and you need to accomplish something and you come in with a sense of purpose. And I feel like that's what I walked into at Penn State in 1986. You know, They had lost the national championship the year before, 1985, and they just came back in 86. They all knew what they had accomplished together in 85, losing to Oklahoma by a few points, and then just realized, you know what, We're, we can do this. And then everyone just kind of, you know, starts moving in the same direction. So you just, I think as a coach and as a player, you just never know until you're in that situation at the, in the beginning of the season on how you're going to be as a team. Is this just going to be a good team or is this going to be one of those special
0: experiences?
1: That's awesome. Well, yeah. I, I think, no doubt, like every everything you've talked about, it seems that you were an extremely successful team player. Obviously, you come from a, a huge family. You played on a great team at Penn State, a great team with the Redskins, and won championships. Um, so I, I have this feeling that you always want to help those that are around you. And I know currently you're working for the NFLPA, but even before you were retired, or maybe this was after your your career? Did you start the smocks or jocks? And did you start painting in your free time? I noticed paintings in the background there. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about that. Oh yeah,
3: these, this is just the stuff that I've hung. Here's my kids' work. I always we always try and honor my wife and I. We always try and honor what they do and just kind of hang. Up. They're they're much older than these paintings would depict, <laughs> but they're all artists in their own in their own right. But um. Mox and jocks was something that I, that I was able to start after I started working with the NFLPA. I just remember in that time frame that I met Dr. Thayer Felder back in 1994, I was all football. There was There was nothing in my life that wasn't football. So in my pursuit to try and create some balance in my life, I started to take trumpet lessons. And, you know, I was a you know, pretty decent artist in high school. I had a great art teacher in high school. And I said, you know what, maybe I'll go out and I'll buy some, some paints and some canvas and some brushes and just try and create some balance in my life. So I started playing the trumpet and I started, started painting and the paintings were, the trumpet was bad and the paintings were worse um, for most of those years. Um, But when I got to the NFLPA, I had an opportunity and a vision to try and show a better side to former players i wanted former players to be an example for their communities that that were more than just players you know that players are are so much you know beyond beyond their careers you know the talent is immense so i started uh smocks and jocks um back in 2006 and i think this year we just had our 15th show and it's every year at the Super Bowl. So now I have hundreds of former player artists that submit pieces um, every year to this show. But it was just—it wasn't—it was to try and to build on that platform when I got to the NFLPA that I I wanted to show players the best image of themselves. So this smocks and jocks was just part of that.
1: So it it sounds like. At some point along your your career, your life, you knew that there was there was more to life than just football. And that kind of inspired you to want to create some for Jocks. And now you're currently the executive director of the Professional Athletes Foundation for the NFLPA. So, how was that transition going from a player to now doing all these different things to help people like you? Like what what inspired you? What was that transition like?
3: I mean, I think I think the the transition, and I I don't like to say transition anymore because it's really really a transformation um, for for guys to go through this. Um, but for me, that you know, leaving football was really hard. You know, you think you're prepared to do so many things, but there's this emotional part of that that really needs to be dealt with, and you're just not really prepared for for the loss that retiring from pro football creates. You've spent your whole life, you know, from the age of four, dreaming about a pro football career and the pageantry and the uniforms and the fans and the crowds and the success on the field. You really feel like a gladiator in Rome and there's not a lot of things in life that can really create that kind of energy. So when you retire from it, you just you just feel so disconnected from your power source. And for me, it took a couple of years to really shake myself, and I would admit, you know, I didn't call it depression then, but in hindsight with all that I know today. I truly was depressed. Um, I feel I credit my family for uh, keeping me busy, for allowing me to focus on them. Um, and then eventually you realize that you're a young person, you're you know, 30 years old, you're a young person and you really you, you have other talents and you really need to embark on a career. Um, so you know, that part, that part was hard, but I don't think, you know, and I've tried to teach my transforming players this now that you can't even begin to move forward until you deal with the emotional aspect of what, what's happened. So at the Professional Athletes Foundation, we provide uh, financial assistance to players that are in need, you know, all former players. And Together with that financial assistance, we've developed um, a program where we have two social workers, master's level social workers on our staff that help players uh, deal with that transformation and counsel players in real time. So there's lots of different pieces. You know, there's the financial assistance part. There's the counseling part. There's what we call um, the passport to wellness where we focus on health, marriage, family, and trying to show players the best image of themselves. So I always try and use other former players to show my transforming players what life can look like. And I've always said to my transforming players that life as a former player is so much better than an active player once you've gone and dealt with the emotional part of what what you're leaving behind. You'll always be that athlete. I'll always be Andre Collins number 55, number 52. I'll always be that guy because that's who I am. In reality, I don't want to run from that. I can't cut that off. But I can also I can also do other things and be fulfilled in this life as a father, as a husband, you know, as as a business professional, being creative and, you know, trying to help people.
0: You mentioned um, depression is something that that you experienced during, during that period of transition, leaving the the league, and you know, and having to deal with this kind of change in, in your identity and who you are, and um, and ultimately have to having to transform yourself, right? And um, and understand that you are more than just a, a football player. That there were many other things that that you could be and have become, and you know. For us, uh, you know, we we talk about you know these transitions for for athletes and and how important they are, and how important it is for a mental health professional to 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 be involved. If nothing else, than to just kind of check in, and, and see what's going on and see if we can be of assistance. So I think it's great that that you guys uh, created this program uh, for the the players uh, through this NFL Players Association. I wanted to say though. Um, you know, we talk about this a lot with depression. I mean, depression can really range. You know, it can be something as simple as you know maybe you know crying spells and you know and difficulty with kind of your appetite, your sleep, your energy, and stuff like that in a period of transition. But it could also be something that uh, becomes as, as serious as you know suicidal you know kind of thoughts and and you know and really uh, you know severe, profound forms of of dysphoria that include hopelessness and so forth. And, and we wanted to know, uh, you know, to what extent uh, the, the player Association has considered even having a, a more robust program that maybe an, involves psychiatrists, and, uh, and you mentioned social workers, psychologists, sports psychologists, sports psychiatrists, uh, and in a more comprehensive format that could even include medical therapies and, and uh, kind of longer term psychotherapies.
3: Yeah. And, and you raise some good points. And, you know, I think I think our programs are generally robust. I mean, it's not the kind of thing and maybe we should talk about it more, but it's not the kind of thing that we always promote. Um, but, you know, when I hired the first social worker at the NFLPA uh, back in 2008, we were really on the front end of embarking on some of this type of stuff. For our former players. And we commissioned a depression study uh, with the University of Michigan, uh, maybe going back, um, you know, 12 or 13 years now. We've had a longstanding relationship uh, with the University of Michigan Depression Center. And then that evolved into a greater relationship with Eisenhower in Ann Arbor. So the services are there, and we realized that our players have a tremendous need. But the work that we did with Michigan back in 2007, and then, you know, having the opportunity to kind of mimic some of what the Department of Defense was doing uh, around depression and stigma, we really needed to start to do the hard work to draw our players out of those caves, to give them a safe place and an opportunity to say that, that they needed help. Um, So, we really had some, some really strong player ambassadors that were willing to go around the country and kind of share their stories and talk to other former players. And I think over the years, uh, through the Professional Athletes Foundation, we've just created this, I don't wanna say fun, but comfortable environment where players can be with each other and the players, significant others can be there as well. Just kind of sharing as family, you know, going through this together. Um, and I'm proud to say that from 2008 to today, I think our family of organizations that includes the Professional Athletes Foundation, the former Player Services Department, the NFLPA, and the Trust, the Players Trust, there are probably 20 or 25 social workers that are on our staff and some, you know, have different levels of uh, clinical skills. Um, So the program's pretty strong and we're moving in the right direction and we have some good hospital partnerships. But if our player presents in the most severe of cases, we have avenues to be able um, to, to get them the help that they
1: need. I think, program you've created that you're directing this professional athletes foundation that you're you're the head of for the nflpa we know is doing great things i love the fact that it's all encompassing what you mentioned this passport to wellness you're including like financial support educational support health care mental health care i even read like a, a lot of addiction counseling i know substance use is something that a lot of these nfl players concussions, a lot of injuries, a lot of pain issues. And I know that can be an issue for these retired NFL athletes. I see that you guys are doing something to combat that. Also, you mentioned the kind of family and and spousal counseling as well. Um, What I I had a specific question, is this specifically you you can connect with the player right after they retire? And is there any requirements as to how many years a, a player has to be in the league in order to qualify for these services?
3: Yeah, for for the majority of our players, as long as they've signed an NFL contract, uh, they can engage the Professional Athletes Foundation and their services. Uh, The Players' Trust, which is a different level of of services because that's collectively bargained um, with the NFL, you have to have two credited seasons to be able to enter into those programs. But anything that the Players' Trust can do for a player that has two credited seasons. If a player has less than those two credited seasons, he can come back to the foundation and really get those same same services. He would just have to enter through a different door. So it's anybody that's ever signed an NFL contract can be a member and can participate in our programs.
1: That's amazing, that's
3: great. You don't even have to have ever even played in a real game. As long as you signed a contract, you're part of our family. That's awesome.
1: And we've talked with the mental health director of the NBA Players Association, and they mentioned at the current time they don't have services for family members, but that is their end goal. I don't know if you, you guys also have the ability or the funds to provide services to a spouse of an NFL player. I, I know that you do the counseling, um, but I, yeah, I know that may be a, a stretch with the amount of funding that you guys have.
3: Well, I mean, we're you know we're in a we're in a great position where you know pro football is a very prosperous industry and at the players association you know for the former players and active players we've always included the spouses and we recognize that our spouses our spouses are the players you know the player's significant others are the players so to to not focus on you know a significant others you know mental health or you know, challenging physical needs would just be, would be egregious and would only be hurting our player in the long run. So, you know, for most of what we do, you know, our spouses are certainly welcomed uh, to participate. Even when our, with our heart screening just two years ago, well, in 2017, we started to allow the significant others of players to go through our cardiovascular screening program, because, you know, what, what good is it if the players in pristine health and his wife is suffering. That's
1: not a good balance. This this really is an all encompassing program, and you're taking into account pretty much everything. We call it the biopsychosocial formulation, but you're really taking into account not just the individual, but their environment, they grow up in, their spouse. So that's that's amazing. That's great. It's good to. hear. But at the
3: same time, I I also want to say you know, and I hope I you know I hope I'm answering these questions you know completely. But also at the same time, I don't want it to seem like we know everything, you know, at the NFLPA or the Professional Athletes Foundation. We're always looking um, to learn more. As team members, we're constantly exploring new relationships and new opportunities uh, to learn. So, you know, we're, we're wide open um, in this space and we know that the landscape is forever changing and we have to be willing to be nimble and change uh, with the times and change with the treatments and change with how our players change, you know, over the course of the years. The players that are retiring today aren't the same type of guy that was retiring 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 25 years ago. So we have to be ready for everything.
1: Yeah. And I, I guess the piggyback on that, I know a lot of, you've seen a lot in, uh, that have been retiring, a lot, I guess, early in their careers due to head injuries. Is there anything like currently now that you guys are trying to Prepare for in the future. Any new adjustments that came down the pipeline over the last couple of years, or anything in the future that that you're trying to address more rigorously?
3: Well, I think you know. I think we're in we're on the highway, so to speak, when we're talking about mental health. But I think there's more that we can do um, in that space, and I think through our family of services, the trust you know, specifically is really trying to engage players as they leave the game. And every player that has two credited seasons that leaves the game and engages the trust gets assigned a program manager that in theory would stay with them until they pass away in this life, some 60 or 70 years from now. So we're trying to link our players up with a program manager and someone that can kind of hold their hand through all the different phases of transformation and transition. But um, we, we, we always have to get better. Um, we always have to get better. And I think the clinical aspect, uh, when you move from psychology into psychiatry, I think that's an area that we have to explore and an area that we have to get better in. I think players present now, former players present with real medical issues that um, the the NFLPA may not always be equipped to handle clinically, and certainly we do a nice job referring um, players in those situations. But I think you know, for me and my goal would be to have some of those clinicians on staff that can handle some of those tough cases, at least at the onset, so that we're giving, that we're sending the player, but we're making that referral. You know with with good medical information uh, to back it up. it's just a it's just a better quality of care uh, for a player and it can be a little
0: more seamless. yeah yeah, and that's one of the things we we try to teach on this show is we we really try to introduce our listeners to all the different aspects of mental health care, and especially with us being psychiatrists. you know we we really like to you know to discuss that that level of care because you know oftentimes this a level of care. That um, you know, as you as you mentioned, is underrepresented uh, in, in sports, and you know we we recognize that there's a lot of different benefits, especially when you, you can uh, approach care from all aspects. And, and um, you know, we appreciate as as fans and listeners is our our our, our young athletes. And you know, as a a, a great NFL player and, and now a, ambassador for the league, um, do you have any particular advice uh for for young athletes in terms of you know being uh protective of their mental health and and you know ultimately also using mental fitness uh and resilience to to become better players and better uh better athletes
3: well i th- i think the good thing the good thing now is that there's an awareness around mental health for, for our young athletes coming along. So there is, there is a general awareness, but the challenges are that these kids are dealing with so much more than what I dealt with at that age. You know, when you have a social media account, you you, you have a media company, you know, there's, there's so much that you're responsible for. And I think sometimes, um, kids get overwhelmed by the things that they engage in. And there's so much information out there. So we're really dealing with a different kind of a beast than we were um, 20 years ago. But I think you hit on it. I think I think if you can give young athletes or just young people some tools for resiliency, you know, just some ways to, to be able to bounce back and to deal with some things, you know, just giving them a toolkit of some go-to things that can kind of not let a small mental health bell that's ringing turn into a five alarm fire. I think sometimes if you just have some of those resiliency skills in your toolkit, you can head off a big problem. Not to say that at some point you won't need help down the road, but at least maybe it can set the stage. And maybe you recognize that you need help a little bit sooner. You know, like I always tell my kids and, you know, the young people that I meet that life is hard, you know, and for my daughters, you know, somewhere along the way, you know, someone's going to hurt you. You know, somewhere along the way, someone may say something that you don't like, but you're in control of how how you want to feel about that you're in control on whether or not you want to want to put that in your suitcase of life and carry that around. So from the time my kids were young, you know, and, you know, we're riding in their car and they're talking about all different kinds of things. And sometimes I would just say, Hey, don't put that in your suitcase of life, you know, and it just, it was just my way of being able to open the door to a conversation and saying, do you really, do you really want to feel bad about that, or do you want to do you want to meet that head on? You have an opportunity right now to take that out of your suitcase and 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 you know and, and travel a little lighter. So I think for the kids today, I think resiliency is um, is a practice that's so underutilized uh, today, so underutilized, and we just really need to you know help help our kids and help these young people understand that there's, there's ways to cope out there and give them those skills uh, to cope.
1: Absolutely. I think you, you touched on it. Great. I think w- what we talk about all the time is a couple of ways to build resilience is doing mindfulness practices, which you spoke brilliantly about, about trying to maintain focus during the game, maintaining a well-balanced life, which you did, and then having gratitude, which is kind of your analogy with the suitcase only, only let things in that are things that are positive or things that are going to push you towards your goals. So I think you're touching on all the things that that we love to talk about. So That's right. I mean, I don't have any further questions. I really appreciate you having you on the show today, Andre Collins. Yeah, Mr. Collins, it's
0: been great.
1: I was just going to say I'm not I'm not a clinician, you know. I, you know,
3: I have my degree from Penn State in hospital administration, so I've spent a lot of time about around, you know, healthcare and I read that you were a department head of an emergency department at one point. I was at Virginia Hospital Center. So I'm around clinicians. I'm not a clinician. I'm an administrator. And that's why I tried to do my best to hire the best people that really do the hard work. So I just appreciate you guys and appreciate the forum to talk about what we've been able to create at the NFLPA and all of our, our family of different divisions at the NFLPA that, that serve players. And hopefully we're a model for other pro sports and collegiate athletes and really sports around the world. So we just want to remain a leader in that space and, you know, and just, just serve our community well.
0: Thank you so much for your leadership. And we look forward to what you guys have the future. Thank you. Appreciate it.
2: Yeah. And uh, just to go as an, as an avid sports fan, the NFL is definitely a leader in professional sports and definitely sets the bar fairly high and a lot of other professional leagues look after as a model so you keep doing what you're doing you're doing a great job out there for sure
3: yep thanks thanks guys hey hey and i mean this sincerely let's stay in touch and see if there's um some type of relationship that
1: we can build absolutely definitely good stuff appreciate it i would love that thank you mr collins thank you so much
2: thank you andre collins everybody
1: thank you <laughs> Absolutely. And you have, a, have a great day. <laughs>